New Age philosopher Deepak Chopra said this, No single decision you ever made has led in a straight line to where you find yourself now. You peeked down some roads and took a few steps before turning back. You followed some roads that came to a dead end and others that got lost at too many intersections. Ultimately, all roads are connected to all other roads. Chopra's saying that life is filled with many paths. Should I graduate from high school or drop out? Should I go to college or work at 18? Should I get married and if so, to who? So many roads, so many choices. And all of these roads, he says, basically intersect at various points. So anybody taking any road might conceivably wind up at any destination. And he says life's all about how we traverse these many interconnected roads. This is a common way of thinking about life today. Life is filled with choices leading to many possible outcomes. But friends, the Bible tells us a very different story. Yes, we may go to college or start working at 18. Yes, we may marry or stay single. Yes, we may buy or rent a house. But no matter how we answer these various questions about our lives, in the end, the Bible says there really are only two paths. We just read this in Psalm 1. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are only two roads. And these two roads head off in radically different directions, and they arrive at two totally different destinations. And this morning we're going to see that which of these two roads we're on and which of these two destinations that we will arrive at are not a question of our education or our ethnicity or our politics or our family size or our success or our net worth. No. In the end, the all-determining issue is this. How will you and I respond to Jesus? That's what we're going to see today as we come to the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through chapter 8, verse 1. And in this passage, we're going to see five pictures that show us why our response to Jesus matters so much. And these pictures will show us what the right response to Jesus is. And they will warn us about wrong responses to Jesus that lead to eternal disaster. So this morning, we are going to encounter some massively important eternity-deciding issues. And so I would plead with you, please pay careful attention as we look to God's Word. Start with our first picture. And here Jesus is going to tell us which of two paths that we need to follow. As we begin this morning, Jesus is winding down his most famous sermon. And he starts his conclusion like this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. What in the world does that mean? Well, here Jesus is beginning to paint a word picture, which is going to illustrate a spiritual truth. And what Jesus is illustrating is this truth I just presented to you. That in the end, everybody winds up in only one of two possible situations. On only one of two possible roads. Heading for one of two possible destinations, which Jesus depicts as two gateways. And Jesus says one of these gateways, one of these destinations, is infinitely better than the other. Jesus says the gate we want to go in is the narrow gate. Say, why? Well, we'll find out. First, he's going to tell us about the alternative, the the not-so-narrow gate. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. 
and those who enter by it are many. Jesus says, it's like this. There's a massive highway, a very wide road that many people can travel upon with great ease. We have some wide roads in this city. Usually people can't travel on them with such ease. But imagine a really big highway that everybody can travel on with great ease. And although a lot of people are on this road, there's still room enough for everybody. It seems very pleasant and accommodating. And as people take this road, it turns out that all the traffic is flowing in just one direction. Everybody's heading for a huge gate in the distance. It must seem to all these people on this road that this destination ahead with this huge gate must be someplace really spectacular. And so they keep on heading towards it. And what does Jesus say? With apologies to ACDC, this road is the highway to hell. And through that gate lies destruction. And friends, this is the situation every one of us is born into. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Every one of us is born guilty of the sin of Adam. Every one of us is born under the sentence of death. We all one day will experience physical death. Our bodies and our spirits will separate. We all are born under the sentence of spiritual death. Friends, all of us start this life severed from God, enslaved to sin, incapable of doing anything good. We all start on this wide road that leads to destruction. And I think it's interesting that Jesus depicts lost humanity as all sharing just this one road. Because I think we might be tempted to think there are many false roads. One person's on the atheist road, and another's on the Hindu road, and another's on the I just don't care road. We may think of these as different roads, but Jesus doesn't. All of these approaches are, in the end, different types of the one sad journey down this wide road. Because everybody who follows any of these approaches to life is unable to address their real problem. Friend, your problem today is not at work. It's not at home. Your problem today is you are a sinner by nature and choice. You are alienated from God, and you deserve God's condemnation just like everybody does. All of us are in that same boat apart from Christ. And so Jesus lumps everybody who is following any false approach as being on this one wide road to destruction. Because all of these people are following some impotent spirituality that cannot save them. Thus they are all heading for one common tragic outcome. Friend, today you need to know that hell is real, that it lasts forever, and that it's worse than you can imagine. And this wide road is the fellowship of the damned inching breath by breath, ever getting closer to eternal condemnation. And we must not be flippant about this if you're a believer because we deserve this outcome. And because many people that we know are on this road, perhaps some of us in this room today, even if you've been a part of this church for a long time, perhaps you are still on this road. And what's tragic is when you're on this road, you don't see how dangerous it is. You don't clearly perceive where it's headed. You think, well, I'm a nice person, and I try to do good things, and I don't want to hurt anybody. Or I try to follow my religion or my philosophy. And we think that's enough, but it isn't. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
And that's what Jesus says about where most of the people in this world are, lost on the highway to hell. But there's some good news, which is there is a way off this broad road to destruction. Matthew 7, 14. Jesus says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. As all the world continues on the highway, Jesus says there is a small path that leads off the road. It's not obvious. It's hard to find. And if you find it, it's difficult to take. It is constricting. That's what this idea of it being narrow gets at. You feel pressure as you take it. And after a distance, this hard, narrow road arrives at a different gate. And behind this gate is what? Not destruction, but life, eternal life. This is what we are to pursue. This is where we want to be. But tragically, very few people find this small road compared to the numbers that stay on the highway. Why? Well, because most people aren't looking for it. And if they saw it, they wouldn't find it very appealing. Not when you're on the spacious, comfortable highway heading to that big, beautiful gate. Very few people want to take the exit to this winding, difficult trail. But what does Jesus say? Take the exit. Take the hard road. Now, what does this mean? What is Jesus depicting? What is this narrow road that leads to this narrow gate? Ultimately, this is the Christian life. Getting off the highway and turning in a different direction is the, the truth that the Christian life begins by exercising repentant faith. Turning to Jesus Christ, away from your former life of sin, entrusting yourself to Jesus, his deity, his death, and his resurrection. And once you take this exit, you do follow him up the narrow road, and it's hard. We've seen that in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? It's hard because Jesus is demanding. He doesn't let us do whatever's right in our own eyes. He's our Lord, and he commands us. He tells us how to live as a distinctive people who are to do good works that point others to him. As people who battle to obey God in thought and deed. And as we try to live in obedience to him, we will experience opposition and persecution. And this makes sense because almost everybody stays on that big highway. Leaving on the narrow road doesn't make any sense to most of the people in this world. Believing, friends, we're not the majority, we're the minority. And so when we buck the trend, when we go against the prevailing wisdom, there are consequences. And Jesus alludes to that here. Because the word he uses, narrow, in verse 14, is related to the Greek word that often describes persecution. And yet, even as we suffer, instead of hating our tormentors, Jesus says, love them and forgive them and forego vengeance upon them. This is indeed a hard road, a sanctifying road. But Jesus says, this is the one and only road that leads to life. This is the road we should walk. Take the narrow road and enter by the narrow gate. That's the first picture. We come now to the second picture. And here Jesus tells us which of two types of spiritual leaders we need to follow. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We've just seen there are two roads, one that leads to life and one that leads to hell. And now we learn that not every religious teacher is truly from God. Not every religious teacher truly points people to life. There are false prophets and unfortunately, they're not always easy to spot. Jude wrote about false teachers like this. He says, certain people have crept into a church unnoticed. That's how false teachers work. They don't show up and say, hey there, Satan sent me 
to give you a bunch of lies so that you'll be stumbled into sin and apostasy. That doesn't happen. False teachers are subtle. They are treacherous, just like their father Satan, whom Paul says disguises himself as an angel of light. In the same way, false teachers also disguise themselves as sheep. Harmless, friendly Christians, just part of the flock. In fact, I tell you, the two worst false teachers I personally know were two of the friendliest people I ever met in a church. But Jesus wants us to know that just because somebody seems friendly and nice doesn't mean they're safe. Because there are people who seem safe outwardly, but inwardly they want to destroy you. Jesus says they are ravenous wolves. Again, they're acting like their father Satan, whom Peter says prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And this is why the false prophets disguise themselves as sheep. So they can sneak around the sheepfold with impunity, moving through the church, finding the vulnerable, finding the confused and surreptitiously leading them to ruin. So Jesus says, beware. And this is a present tense command, which in Greek speaks of ongoing action. He's saying continually be vigilant, always be on guard. But friends, if false teachers are always in disguise, how will we know when we encounter one? Well, Jesus gives us a test in verse 16. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus told us there are times when we've got to form righteous judgments. Now again, Jesus says, you've got to judge. You've got to determine who is a false teacher. And how do we do this? He says, look at their fruits. Now again, Jesus returns to the world of illustration. And here he draws some metaphors from the world of plants. First he says in verse 16, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, if you're like me, you probably don't know much about fruit. But helpfully, there are commentators out there who write on this. And one commentator says, Jesus here is talking about plants that look from a distance like they're bearing fruit, but when you get up close, you find out they're not. So certain types of thorn bushes in Israel, from a distance, look like they produce groups, grapes because they produce these little berries. When you get up close, you find out they're not grapes because a thorn bush isn't a grapevine. Or certain thistles look from a distance like they're bearing figs. But you get up close, you see, oh, that's just a nasty thistle. There's no fruit on that. See, friends, the point is this. In the end, a plant only produces the sort of fruit that it's genetically programmed to produce. You can't get an orange off an apple tree. It just doesn't work that way. In the same way, friends, you won't see real Christian fruit in the life of a false teacher. He can't produce the real thing because he isn't regenerate. He doesn't belong to the Lord. And so what he produces will inevitably be false. From a distance, it might look genuine. But when you get up close, you'll see, oh, his doctrine is a little bit different than what the Bible says. Or his life trends towards disobedience, not obedience, or the lives of his close followers. He doesn't evidence the fruit of the Spirit, but the deeds of the flesh. He doesn't seek to glorify God. He seeks to glorify himself. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits, because what we produce shows what we really are. In the same way, Jesus says in verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Here Jesus changes the picture up a bit. Instead of talking about the type of fruit plants produce, now he says, let's talk about tree health. 
You got a healthy tree, you're going to get healthy fruit. You got a sick tree, you're going to get gross fruit. And when Jesus talks about bad fruit here, he uses a word that usually speaks of moral evil. He's reminding us this is just a metaphor. Jesus isn't lecturing on botany. He's telling us a spiritual truth. Your condition determines what you produce. Spiritual health begets godliness and goodness. And spiritual death begets wickedness. And where does the metaphor end? Verse 19, Jesus says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Friends, there is a reckoning that is coming for all that is false. For all that bears to, fails to bear good fruit. False prophets and false teachers will be condemned by God because they are part of the broad road that terminates in destruction. And so Jesus says they will go into the fire. Again, this is a picture of hell. There are false religious teachers who are going to hell. And what's more is they're going to take some of their followers with them. They'll take all of their followers with them probably. This is a big part of the, the book of Jude. Jude says, stay away from false teachers because you don't want to be in the blast radius when the judgment of God falls on them. Watch out for false teachers. Remember the lesson of the two types of trees and the two types of fruit. And apply it to guard yourself and your fellow church members. Beware false teachers. Be vigilant about anybody who would claim a position of spiritual authority over you. Examine them closely by God's word. See what they produce in themselves and in others. Follow only teachers who bear good gospel fruit. That's the second point. Coming out of the third point. And here we see which of two approaches we need to have towards Jesus. And this time Jesus paints a picture which is not metaphorical. It's quite literal. And here I think we find some of the most disturbing words in the entire Bible. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here Jesus gives a preview of what he calls that day, the day of judgment. The time when there will be a final separation of those on the narrow road from those on the broad road. When some will enter eternal life and some will be cast into the fire. And with this setting, during this act of separation, Jesus now focuses our attention on a group of people who are protesting or appealing his judgment. Who are these people? Muslims? Buddhists? People in those faraway lands who've never heard the gospel? No. Instead, Jesus points our attention to just one particular group among these vast numbers of lost people. And the group Jesus points our attention to, he says, is quite large. It consists of many people. And who are these people? Well, Jesus introduces us to them by saying that they call him Lord, Lord. Now, this word Lord is a very significant word in the Bible. The most common edition of the Bible in Jesus' day was called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, this word Lord was almost always used in place of the name of God. In fact, in the Septuagint, every time this particular phrase is used, Lord, Lord, it is addressing God. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, on every occasion but one, this word Lord has been used to speak of God. 
And so, Jesus is now drawing our attention to a group of people who seem to be addressing Jesus as God. Now, it's a good thing to address Jesus as God, right? Because we've already seen in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is God the Son. The Father himself said so in chapter 3. We're going to see in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus performs several miracles that show he's God. So yes, Jesus is God. And these people are acknowledging that Jesus is God. And yet Jesus numbers them among the lost. And Jesus here is showing us something we need to know. There is a category, there is a group of people he wants us to realize exist that point up something he just told us in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying there are people who think they're on the narrow road, who think they're Christians, who hold some correct theology, who have some profession of faith, and yet they're really lost. This is an important point, friends. There are people who are really on the broad road that think they're on the narrow road. There are people who think they belong to Jesus, but who actually don't. That's a really important concept, isn't it? Imagine it. You live your whole life believing yourself to be saved, and in the end you get to Jesus, and he says, I don't know you. That's a horrible idea, right? It's a horrible picture. Having been, had a false assurance of salvation all those years, friends, we don't want this to be us, right? And so what that means is we need to pay attention to what Jesus says so that we can examine ourselves by the warning he gives us here and make sure he's not describing us. All right, so Jesus says we've got this group of people who thought they're saved, but we just found out they weren't. And so they protest. And the nature of their protest is these folks say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, we did some amazing works in your name. How can you say we don't belong to you? And what are the works these folks point to? Well, they say, well, some of us have prophesied. We've disclosed supernatural revelation in your name, Jesus. Some of them say, we cast out demons in your name, Jesus. Some of them said, we did mighty works, that is, miracles, in your name, Jesus. Surely a track record like this must be proof positive that these folks belong to Jesus, right? So they think. But Jesus tells these folks, in fact, they do not belong to him. I never knew you, he says. Wow. What's going on here? We've got to be really clear here. Because over the years, I've heard this passage interpreted many different ways. And I think this passage is often abused by people who have some kind of hobby horse issue. And they want to paint these guys who get rejected on the last day as those who disagree with the preacher on this hobby horse issue. Friends, we can't do that here. The stakes in this passage are just too high. We've got to read this very closely and make sure that we're reading what Jesus actually says. So first, let me tell you what this passage is not about. Number one, this passage is not about people being condemned because ultimately they trusted their salvation to works. Now, of course it's true. If you trust your salvation to your own ability to do good works, you will be lost forever. The Bible says that very clearly. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, it's true that when the people in this group are condemned by Jesus, they're surprised and they point to their works thinking this is evidence of their salvation. But that doesn't mean these guys believed in works righteousness. Instead, they seem to think what they're doing is what the book of James says to do. Show your faith by your works. I don't think this is about faith versus works. After all, these guys' first appeal to Jesus is, Lord, Lord, they've come with correct theology. They've come with a profession of faith. I don't think that's what this text is about. Number two, 
This passage is not about people being condemned because they performed charismatic works. Now, it's true that the works these folks say they've done in this passage are miraculous, prophesying and exorcising and performing miracles, but I don't think this is a warning against charismatic practices. And I say this as somebody who is a strong critic of charismaticism, but I don't think the point here is, if you perform charismatic works, you're lost. I think Jesus is depicting this group as having performed the mightiest works imaginable. Jesus is showing us this group not only has proper theology, they have performed some amazing works, yet they're still lost. Jesus is portraying this group in the best possible light so that he will draw our attention to precisely the issue that shows where it is that they fall short, okay? So it's not about their profession. It's not about works. Okay, number three. This passage is not about people being condemned for performing false works in the name of Jesus. Some people claim that's what this passage is about. You know, sometimes in the Bible, demons simulate the work of God. So the argument is sometimes, oh, these people are mistaken. They think they're performing real miracles, but their miracles were demonic. But what's interesting is when these guys say to Jesus, we performed miracles in your name, he doesn't say, no, you didn't. I don't think that's the point here either. Their works seem to be authentic. So what's the issue? They have a profession of faith. They have some amazing deeds which you think would lend credence to their claim of faith. And yet they're lost. Is this possible? Well, later in the Gospel of Matthew, we find this. Matthew 10, Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And who's among these 12 disciples? Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, who was possessed by Satan himself. And yet here he is, casting out demons and healing diseases in the name of Jesus. Friends, the criterion of salvation is not whether someone has a profession of faith. It's not whether they perform some real-seeming deeds in Jesus' name. No. What is it? Look at verse 21. Jesus tells us plainly. It's not the person who says, Lord, Lord. Rather, it is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven that will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says. That is who Jesus salvifically knows. All right, but what does that mean? What is the will of the Father? Well, according to this morning's passage, we know that part of the will of the Father is this. Friend, get off the broad road that's leading to destruction. This is something Matthew said a lot about in his book. We were first introduced to this idea by John the Baptist, who said in chapter 3, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come. Turn away from your present life of sin and turn to Jesus in faith. Likewise, in chapter 4, Jesus preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later in chapter 10, Jesus will send his disciples out to preach the same message. The Father has sent the Son. And what is the right response? Get off the broad road. Stop heading for the wide gate. Repent and look to Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus said, listen to me, friends, listen to this. Jesus said, this is the work of God in John 6, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Turn from the broad road to Jesus. But what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to turn to Jesus? What does it really mean to believe? This is such an important question, especially in our day and age when there's such a lack of teaching from the Bible about conversion? What does the Bible say about saving faith? On one hand, it has to do with some truths about Jesus. 
Many of us know this verse. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a true promise. The contents of saving faith involve us personally entrusting ourselves to Jesus and in particular trusting ourselves to Jesus on the basis of some things that are true about him. He is the Lord. He is God the Son in human flesh. He died for our sins. He is risen from death. Friends, if you don't believe these things, you cannot be saved. But today, this verse is often twisted into offering a kind of salvation by reciting the magic formula approach. There are people who say, well, see, this verse just says, if you say Jesus is Lord, you're saved forever. You never have to worry about it again. Make it all about just saying the right words in the right order. But what we find in Matthew 7 is something quite different. The true saving confession of Jesus as Lord is not about us saying the right words in the right order. Because not everybody who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. No, the true saving confession of Jesus as Lord is not only about us professing faith. It's also about us apprehending and submitting to the truth that our profession of faith claims. Recognizing that Jesus is Lord means he is our rightful ruler. And we who claim to be his people must follow him. And this too is the will of the Father. Not just that we exit the broad road, but that we take the narrow hard road. The road that follows Jesus. That is the true confession of Jesus as Lord. And we know that because Jesus tells us so. Luke 6.46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus' as a right acknowledgement of him as Lord and God presupposes that we will become people who follow him on the narrow road, who become obedient to him. Similarly, Jesus says elsewhere in John 14 and 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In the same way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned in Matthew 5, 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But what were the Pharisees and scribes about? They were hypocrites. They claimed a relationship with God they really didn't have. Living a life outwardly purporting to be godly, but inwardly they were terribly disobedient. And Jesus says, that doesn't cut the mustard. That's not real. That is lostness. That is the broad road. Instead, Jesus says in Matthew 5, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the real relationship to Jesus recognizes his rulership and obeys him. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, Ben. This sounds like works salvation. But it isn't. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're not saved by our works. We can't save ourselves. Salvation is a gracious gift from the Lord, received only through faith. But for what purpose are we saved? The next verse tells us in Ephesians 2. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace through faith so that we then will perform good works. 
And our passage tells us these aren't just any old works done in the name of Jesus. These aren't roving magicians thinking they're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. No. The good works the Bible says God's people will produce are works of obedience. We're going to see that very clearly in verse 21, where Jesus talks about doing the will of the Father in terms of this, being the one who hears these words of mine and does them. Those are the works that point to the reality of our salvation. These are the works James talked about when he said faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, understand, I'm not saying that truly saved people will be infallibly obedient to Jesus. I'm not teaching sinless perfection. True believers battle the flesh. We all stumble in many ways, sometimes for long periods of time. We're not sinlessly perfect people. But what I am saying is what Jesus said in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus, real sheep, hear his voice, the authority of his words, and they follow him. These are the people Jesus says he knows salvifically. But the warning here, friends, is this. There is something that looks like saving faith, that professes true theology, that keeps people busy in Jesus' name, which characterizes many, many people, but in the end it really isn't saving faith because it's never come to grips with the true meaning of the confession it professes, that Jesus is Lord. And so there are people with pseudo-faith who never really turn off the broad road, who never really follow Jesus up the narrow road, who never repent, who are indifferent about obedience. And what does Jesus say the end of this pseudo-faith is? He says, I never knew you, and he dismisses them into hell forever. And as he does so, what does he say? He quotes Psalm 6, and he says, Away with you, workers of lawlessness. In the end, what is the characteristic that Jesus highlights about these deceived people? Their lawlessness, their disobedience. That's what shows they never belonged to him. Friends, later in this book, Jesus stretches out his hands towards his disciples. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Friends, there are two approaches to Jesus. There is a false faith which merely professes him, but which has no interest in turning towards him and giving up our sin or following him down the hard road. Friends, true faith in, in the alternative bears true fruit, the fruit of repentance and obedience. And Jesus here tells us the right approach to him is that one, the one that bears fr the fruit of repentance and obedience, which not only professes faith, but which lives like it's true. We come now to the fourth picture. And here we see which of two foundations we must build our lives upon. Verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then, and in Greek this word then is really the word therefore. So, on the basis of everything Jesus has said up to this point, on the basis of his instruction about the two roads and the two trees and the two types of fruit and the two types of approaches people have towards him, in consequence of all of that now, here is the conclusion. And in fact, friends, this is the conclusion to the entire Sermon on the Mount. Everything Jesus has said in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, everything we've said in this series since like February, this is the conclusion right now. And Jesus tells a parable. He says, verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This parable comes from the world of construction, of home building. Jesus says a wise man builds his house on the rock. Why? Because sometimes terrible storms come. Verse 25, Jesus says, And the rain fell, 
And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. We know a little bit about this in Houston, right? About rain and floods and winds. Because we have hurricanes, right? But as bad as hurricanes are, in this day and age, we usually see them coming. It's not a surprise. But you know, there are some parts of this state where it is very much a surprise to get caught in a sudden and dangerous storm, especially if you're in West Texas, in the desert. Storms flare up unexpectedly, and flash floods happen, and sometimes people get washed away. But that's how it is in Israel, too. Sudden, severe storms are no jokes. You need a house that can endure the storm. And what, do, what will decide whether your house survives the storm or not? Jesus says the critical issue is your house's foundation. Verse 25, Jesus says the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus says the wise man's house didn't fall because he built his house on the rock. The rock doesn't blow away when the winds come. It doesn't let water seep into the home through the cracks. The rock foundation endures. Knowing that, a wise person builds on the rock. But, verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Newsflash, not everybody's wise. And not everybody knows how to build a house that will endure. There is another possible foundation to the rock. Just as we've seen two roads and two trees and two approaches to Jesus, now we see two foundations. The fool builds not on the rock. He built his house on the sand. And you know that house looks sturdy and beautiful until the storm came. And when it came, what happens to the house? Verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The wind blew at the sand the water made murkiness of the sand and started to pour into the house. And the house became unsteady and collapsed, caving in on its residents and crushing them to death. And the whole thing is a heap of ruin. That's the parable. What's it mean? Well, this is not a situation where we have to guess because Jesus tells us the meaning. Building on the rock, Jesus says, is like hearing these words of mine, the words Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount but not just hearing them. He says it's hearing his instruction and doing it, obeying it. That's the sturdy ground. That's the firm foundation. That's the solid rock. It's Jesus and what Jesus says. But what's the sand? Again, Jesus says this involves hearing these words of mine. But now we have a person who has decided not to obey them. So this isn't just somebody out there who doesn't know about Jesus. The issue here is not ignorance. The issue is educated, informed rejection of Jesus. Jesus is drawing a contrast between those who know what Jesus says and obey him and those who know what Jesus says and reject and disobey him. And where do these two paths lead? Well, Jesus says a storm is coming, friends. We may not know exactly when. It may catch us by surprise, like it catches people in the desert. But a storm is coming. And one house will survive and one house will not. Say, so, well, what do all these symbols represent? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly, but he really doesn't need to. Because the context of this passage tells us all we need to know. This is the fourth illustration in this sequence of pairs. And where did all the previous pairs end? One road leads to life. One road leads to destruction. One tree bears good fruit. One tree is cast into the fire. One approach to Jesus leads to the kingdom. And one leads to eternal separation from him. In each case, we have a picture of the final judgment, right? 
And so what is Jesus saying? Storm is coming. Now, we could say, well, this, this represents the storms of life and the hard times we encounter. And that's certainly a true application. The life that is grounded on Jesus, that regards his word highly, that will be better situated to survive hard times than the life that doesn't know it. But in the context of this whole passage, I think the storm is the coming inevitable judgment of God. And as we saw in verses 21 to 23, there are some people who think that because they've heard the words of Jesus and just said, Lord, Lord, that they're safe. And the judgment of God comes and they experience total loss, ruinous collapse. Great was their fall. And why? Because they didn't really found their life upon Jesus. How can you think you have a life built on Jesus if you're disinterested in what he has to say? How can you call Jesus Lord, Lord and reject his word? How can you say, I am one of Jesus' sheep and plug your ears when he speaks? Jesus' answer is clear, you can't. These are descriptions of things that may seem to be real faith, but which actually aren't. And in the judgment, people in this posture will be swept away, along with all those who are on the broad road. They will be cast into hell. And Jesus says, it is the life that stands firm in the midst of the storm, the life that is not destroyed. That is the life that is grounded in a right relationship with him, that recognizes Jesus as Lord, that recognizes his word as authoritative and binding. That is what real faith produces. That is the faith that inherits the kingdom. And Jesus' brother James said this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hear the word of Christ and his apostles and do it. That's what true faith should produce in us. Again, we're not saved by our obedience, but our obedience will show that we're saved. Because true faith will, to a substantial degree, produce the fruit of obedience. And this is the foundation that we must build our lives upon, Jesus and his word. Because nothing else will endure the coming storm. All right, we come now to our last point, and here we see which of two responses is the right response we must have towards Jesus. Since the start of chapter 5, Jesus has been preaching on the mountain. And during this time, he's primarily been preaching to his disciples. But there have been other people listening to him too. Folks, we were introduced to at the end of chapter 4. There we were told that as a result of Jesus' miracles, his fame spread and great crowds came to him, gathered from many different places. And now as Jesus concludes his sermon, we see the response of these crowds. Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The crowds were amazed. They're amazed first because this isn't the kind of teaching they're used to hearing. See, the religious leaders they were used to hearing were the Pharisees and scribes. And what the Pharisees and scribes did when they taught is they'd get up and they'd say, well, here's what I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to prove this is right by telling you about all these famous teachers from the past who said the same thing I'm telling you right now. Rabbi so-and-so said this, you know. But we don't see Jesus doing that in this sermon. Instead, Jesus has gotten up and just spoken the truth plainly. He didn't need to appeal to any human authority. And this was stunning to the crowds. It wasn't what they expected. Instead, friends, what we see is this. Jesus has an innate authority to declare the will of God. It is an astonishing authority Jesus claims here, is it not? He says, if you build your whole life on what I'm telling you and me, you will be saved. And if you don't, you're going to go to hell forever. That's amazing authority. Jesus declares what is right and what is wrong. And we've seen this throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, right? Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has said, 
some very demanding and confrontational things. He said, those religious teachers you like so much, scribes and Pharisees, they're hypocrites. He says they've lied about what God really requires. They've twisted the scriptures. They've been permissive about that which God hates. Easy divorce and lying and uh, revenge. They've pretended to obey God's law forbidding murder and adultery, but in their hearts they've been filled with evil anger and lust. They pretend to do good deeds, but they just really want the applause of men, not to help people or to glorify God. They've worshipped money. And Jesus says they stand condemned. They won't enter the kingdom. But more than just denouncing those teachers, Jesus has also said that we need to make sure our righteousness is not like theirs or else we will never enter the kingdom either. And Jesus has told us why this is, friends. Because here is the absolute standard God will hold every person who's ever lived to. Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The moral standard to enjoy eternal life is the moral standard of God's own perfection. Are you perfect? Am I perfect? No, right? Far from it. The Apostle Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners by nature and choice. We've all blown it. In ourselves, it's hopeless. But Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Friends, there is someone who has met God's standard. Someone who's not a sinner by nature because he had a miraculous birth. Someone who's not a sinner by choice, but who's who lived a life so obedient to God's word that he could say, all of the scripture really points to me. And that's Jesus. Jesus has met the standard you and I can never meet. And there's great news, which is Jesus is willing to share his perfect righteousness with his people. And so, friends, there is a way to avoid the coming storm. There is a way to avoid the condemnation of God. There is a way to receive eternal life. And Jesus has shown us in this passage how we lay hold of his righteousness. We must turn off the broad road and turn onto the narrow road. Friends, there is only one path of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is it, friends. There aren't a million different paths that lead to God. There is only Jesus. And the life that is grounded on Jesus will withstand the judgment. Only Jesus has made for us a way to be saved. How? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared. Friends, Jesus died because we all deserve to die. He died in our place. And he has risen from death. He has vanquished Satan's sin, death, and hell. And more than that, 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus takes your sin and he offers to give you his perfect righteousness so that you can meet the otherwise impossible standard of the Father. But we can receive this gift only through repentant faith, not just the faith of lip service, not just saying, Lord, Lord, not merely the faith of intellectual assent. Oh yeah, I believe that stuff happened just like I believe Napoleon lost at Waterloo. No, that's not real faith. Saving faith is faith that says, God, I have been a rebel against you, but now I surrender. I submit to your rule. It's faith that says, I need a new citizenship. I need to stop being a citizen of the world, and I need to start being a citizen of heaven, which says I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. I want to be a slave to Christ. 
Friend, if you've never come to Christ, cast yourself on Jesus with this true faith. And this isn't a one-time pray a prayer and I'm good and I can go back to my old life. No. If you really come to Christ, you will follow him on the hard road. The road to sanctification, the painful road. That's the road that leads to life. As Jesus said in last week's passage, knock and keep knocking and it will be open to you. Come to him in faith. He won't cast you out. But I know that most of us here claim that we have exercised saving faith in Jesus. We claim to follow Jesus. And to you, what I want to say this morning is this. This passage began by showing that most people are lost on the highway to hell, following many different lies that all lead to ruin. And at the end of this passage, though, Jesus really focuses in, doesn't he? On those who claim to have a relationship with him, but who really don't. Jesus is warning us against a false assurance of salvation. So if you claim to know Christ today, what I want you to do is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. What fruit are you bearing? Again, I'm not saying you're going to be sinlessly perfect. But is there some evidence of obedience in your life? Or in the end, will your faith only consist of words? Or will it be proved by obedient works? Have you not only heard the words of Jesus? Is your life built on obedience to them? Or as James puts it, are you self-deceived? Will your life fall to ruin when the storm of judgment comes? You know, the crowds that heard Jesus, they listened to him with astonishment. More than that, chapter 8, verse 1 says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. The crowds followed, but they didn't stay long. They hung around Jesus when he thought that Jesus would meet their felt needs. Oh, Jesus, he'll cure my disease. Jesus, he'll give me some bread. But they didn't want a Jesus who reigned over them who commanded them, who corrected them. And so in time, they fell away, and they showed that they never really belonged to Jesus to begin with. Friends, don't be like the crowds. I implore you, enter the narrow gate. Do the will of the Father by repentantly entrusting yourself to Jesus. Build your life on the rock, listening to what he says. Because there are only two paths. There is no third. And these two paths part forever, never to be rejoined. And so what Moses and later Jeremiah said to Israel, I now say to you, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Choose life that you may live. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear this message. But Lord, more than hearing it, we need your spirit to work in our lives. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, they would be confronted by the clear teaching of Jesus and they would see the peril they are in. And I pray, God, you would bring them to salvation. And Father, if there are those of us who are sitting here in this terrible position of being self-deceived and having a false assurance of salvation that really isn't ours, Father, help us to realize this. And help us to get off the broad road and, and come to Christ. Father, if, if we are yours, but we've been straying, and we've been playing games of sin in our lives, I'm sure many of us are. Lord, for we all stumble in many ways. Help us, Father, to to repent, to confess our sin, and to, to again, pursue the narrow road, to, to, to push further up the narrow road, even though it's hard and it's painful, so that you'll do the good work that only you can do and continue to cleanse us and prepare us for eternity. Father, you know where every person in this room is. You know our true condition. Show us, Lord, how we should respond to what we've heard today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.